Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia Crico, Senior Content Producer at Booktopia, and joining me today is Ben Hunter, our Fiction Category Manager. Hello, Ben. Hi, Olivia. And our guest today is Jessie Too, the author of A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing. Welcome, Jessie. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming onto the show. Um, I'm excited. Jessie, uh, yeah, hi. Thank you, yeah, thank you so much for doing this. Um, from what I um, understand of you, you, you've been writing from a very young age and you've had a sort of varied career in which you've been a teacher and you're currently a journalist with, the, uh, with Women's Agenda. Uh, you've written poetry um, and now this is your debut novel. Um, so what's drawn you to fiction? I think at that moment in my life, um, like you said, I've been writing for since I was like five. So I learned English when I came to Australia at the age of five. And as an ESL um, student, I was encouraged by my teacher to write, keep a journal every day. And so that habit, that routine was just ingrained in me for, for since forever. And I think when I reached that age in, you know, two years ago, I, I wanted to answer a question that was deeply personal in regards to a, a relationship I was in at that time. And I felt like I could only extricate myself in a specific way in which nonfiction, like I had historically only written nonfiction and I felt really akin to that genre. Um, there was something sort of deeply truthful about essay collections, particularly that I felt drawn to. But then at that time in my life, I wanted to, like I said, like dissociate myself from where I was at and make a character into this um, and into solving this narrative problem that I had in regards to what I was going through with a particular man. And I could only do that through fiction. That's fascinating. Um, mm. do, do you still have the diaries? Do you ever go back and read them? <laughs> yeah, I do. It's um, it's such a sort of masturbatory thing, isn't it, to like go back and read your own stuff? But um, I have to, I have to say, most of it is just really, really awfully um, intense teenage angst kind of thing. Like most of it is like, oh, I hate my mother, I hate my father, I hate this guy who would never look at me. You know, it was always just sort of so much anger. I think it was just a, a place for me to put all my anger and intense emotions because I felt like I couldn't do that within my own family. Fascinating. And, and you, you mentioned dissociation, uh, which kind of straight away brings us to this character, very interesting character of Jenna. Um, could you introduce our listeners to Jenna? So Jenna is a, when we meet her at the beginning of the book, she's 22 years old. She was a violin prodigy and she's now struggling to find herself back as a violinist. She's trying to struggle with the her competing desires to make herself known in the classical music world. She had a breakdown in her teenage years, a very public meltdown, and she's trying to find her way back into that world of, you know, elitism and prestige. But she's also now a young woman who has for a lot of different reasons, found herself lacking in emotional um, substance, I guess. And what, how, what she tries to do is find validation and strength as a woman through having a lot of sex with men. And I guess that the narrative of Jenna throughout the book is her trying to come to terms with the limits of that single pursuit of power. Mm. It's interesting that in that book, um, in your book, um, 
there's that conflation that I think a lot of young women go through where um, they do conflate sexual power with, like, they do conflate sex with power and not mm-hmm. in ways that are usually very useful or healthy even. Um, so it was interesting to kind of watch that unfold on the page in a way that was very, like, I will say explicit, but, like, also just not holding anything back and being a lot, like, kind of realistic about a the way that a lot of young women do experience sex. Mm. Um, did, could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think um, I think I was conflicted about whether or not to put that in. Like when I wrote mm. it, it was very much me pouring out all the messiness in my heart and in my head and in my soul. And I didn't self, like there wasn't much self-scrutiny or self-judgment when it came to just the craft of writing what I wanted to write down on paper and what I felt was necessary to see on paper. Um, a lot of the sort of sexual explicit uh, stuff that I'd read in novels throughout my life had been, I don't know, just it well, either was written by a white guy or like it was, um, I found a lot of, actually, I found a lot of strength from reading a lot of queer literature, like sex between same-sex couples was very, very enlightening for me. Um, but, but I guess like, I felt like I needed to do that in order to just, I don't know, like confront what I didn't want to shy away from like things that were really confronting to me as a young woman. And I think I wanted to just see what that would look like on the page. What, what, what interests me, I guess, is that, um, this character of Jenna is, is having lots of sex, um, uh, but it's as you say, it's it's not it's from a non-white male perspective that we as a reader are, are going at it. Um, and what you've written is perhaps not the cliche story of a hero having lots of sex, but missing out on that special capital L love and turning that around through uh, a happy ending. Um, you've written a young woman who's addicted to sex um, and is using that as a kind of shortcut to admiration from people who are dominant in her world. She isn't waiting for a white knight to sort of rescue her from a life of debauchery. She's searching for that, I think you use the word, validation um, after a lifetime of dislocation and abuse. Um, is that is that how you would describe it? Um, yeah, I think I would. I think um, what I really wanted to do was put inside a narrative this whole like I've been thinking about sex for like so long like I'm a very I think what I wanted to do was write a novel where I can like in my daily life in my social life I'm someone who's just deeply interested in sex not because you know not because I'm a a particularly like weird creepy prurient person but because like I feel like as a society we're so overwhelmingly um set on thinking about sex as this like athletic conception but I feel as though our language around sex I'm just talking about heterosexual sex in this context um it's just so narrow and it's so lacking there's a kind of like a overwhelming poverty of language in the ways in which we describe relations between men and women and like there's nothing like sex like there's nothing as um political and also um, involubly personal, you know, when it comes to two people coming together and engaging in intercourse. And yet we don't have the 
sort of humane language to describe what happens like on a polit- like sort of politically when two people like a man and a woman come together and i think what i was trying to do was in like kind of sort of invite that into the public sphere because like sh- like sex and loneliness are two such sort of remaining taboos in society that we don't talk about much and i'm just like baffled i'm really baffled as to why we we still in 2020 feel we turn away or shy away from conversations that you know like sex you know sex is it you know it's incredibly powerful like it makes human beings it destroys people you know like I don't know why we don't have a a sort of consistent yearning to to explain the ethics and the politics of it yeah so that's that's definitely something you've hit head on in this novel um why, why have you chosen um, to, uh, in, in sort of ex- exploring that concept and that that great set of issues, um, when did the choice come along to make it all about um, this girl uh, who is an incredibly talented musician and in a cutthroat world of classical music? How did I decide that? Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I guess... I guess I find it really interesting that you 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 kind of show us a um, parallel between um, this kind of white heteronormative domination in the bedroom and a white heteronormative domination in orchestras and music halls. Yeah. Um, uh, where you've got this um, young woman who's dissociating um, from herself to sort of perform a role. Um, mm. where she can't fully express herself, but she's expressing something that's very difficult and um, uh, it, it serves a purpose of white male aggrandizement at the end of the day when you put on the um, heels and the evening dress and you yeah. bring to life the um, incredibly difficult work of dead white guys. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that um, very concrete way you've drawn those two parallels together. It's precisely what it was. Yeah, I think, yeah, it precisely that what it, that's what it felt like, this powerful notion that I, I think I wanted to really, I mean, I wanted to centre a young woman who is always in this, um, this sort of consistent perpetual state of want and kind of the destructive forces in which our society continues to create barriers around women who do want to pursue their life on their own terms. But like, I guess when it comes to sex and for women and also classical music, I feel like the classical music world, which I was like vehemently trying to penetrate into when I was a young person, it felt so alienating to me because I didn't look like anyone else. Um, it was a very like wealthy world. It was so elitist. And like, I felt like I always had to perform. Like I felt like there was always a veneer, a uh, sort of like layer of just like scru- overwhelming sense of self scrutiny that was required for people who engaged in um, classical music. It's almost like ballet as well. Um, it's right. very high high end art, right? Where you are, uh, like for ballerinas, for instance, like the art of a beautiful ballerina is to obscure the pain that is involved, right? You have to make it look effortless. And I feel like, um, you know, for me, I draw 
parallels to like sex or like pornography where women you know like guys grow up looking at porn and they think that women get off from being hurt this is this idea that women like pain you know so I wanted I think to explore those two two notions of like what it means to be a woman and to perform for the male gaze Mm. and and the music scene in in Jen's eyes and through her ears is is not the kind of place of reverence and joy and creativity that maybe the kind of mostly white patronage of of that scene might think it to be it's like all cutthroat competition and extreme elitism and and maybe, and maybe you're drawing on, I guess, um, maybe, maybe maybe a white person can can achieve, can, can sort of like um, be there and 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 be justified. The other, do you, yeah. you feel like you have to like just you know, when you were a young performer, do you have to like constantly sort of justify being there by being supremely good? I, I feel like that that's yeah. that's totally what Jen is trying to do, right? Yeah, yeah, precisely. And it's the thing, like, with anyone who looks outside of what has been, like, what has been typical of that particular field, you know, like, say, in the sciences, if you don't, like, if you don't look like a a white guy in a lab coat, you know, you have to do so much more in order to set yourself up for, you know, because people look at you more suspiciously. Like, if you are someone who moves inside a body where you know there's a precedence of people who look like you before you then it's just people don't suspect you or they don't um you're not as suspicious as you know say if you look like black or a latino or asian or if you're transgender or if you're you know large or if you're disabled like all these identities of otherness you have to go above and beyond to to prove to people that you're eligible to be there just because you look different you know, like, you know, like if you are a white guy, for instance, and you want to be a judge, it's so much more easier for you than, say, an Asian woman. Because, you know, I, I can't even, in my, off the top of my head, I don't even think I've ever seen an Asian judge in Australia, you know? Oh, I mean, a female Asian judge. So, like, if I wanted to do that, then I would have to fight a lot of people's preconceived ideas of, like, oh, why does she deserve to be there? Because she doesn't look like a typical judge. Mm. Yeah. And even... It's just so ironic because there is that stereotype of, you know, the brilliant Asian wonderkin musical prodigy, you know what I mean? Like, so there's like, like, I always remember, like, um, I used to play piano and people say, oh, like whenever an Asian kid would get up and perform, they'd say, oh, he's just robotic. He's just too good. And it's like, there's still those strange stories that we've constructed around, you know, just performance. Yeah. And race. Yeah. Oh, no, I just, I find that so viscerally um insulting because like mm. when people like I remember whenever I said in the people in, in the past when people asked what instrument I played and I said violin they'll be like oh yeah I kind of knew that because like you said this is like image of you know young alpha male um Asian also alpha type Asians you know children of so-called tiger parents who are you know either pianists or violinists like I can count on the number of on one hand the number of like trumpet players who are Asian or like I don't know um, bassoon players maybe like you know like it just seems like Asian people reach for the hardest things because we want to prove ourselves because we feel like we're ineligible to be participating in a white society we have to stand out 
and we we reach for the hardest things, right? Like people, like I think it's general knowledge that um, the violin and the piano are kind of like technically the hardest instruments there is, at least in the Western yeah, world, you know? definitely. Yeah, but um, you, you, do you guys know Encore? You know the the performance yeah. every year? Yeah, yeah. So the Encore is like, for those who don't know, an uh, the best HSC performers of every year from high school. And um, I remember once a few years ago where I had a conversation with a white male teacher who kind of looked down the list of the program and saw like a lot of Asian names next to violin or piano. And he rolled his eyes and he said, oh, not another, like not, not again. Like, and he said, he made a comment about the year after year, there's these robotic, technically brilliant, perfect um, Asian players. But he, but he was like, oh, they, but they lack soul or spirit. And I find that deeply insulting and racist because, you know, as Asians, we, we're we not seen as individuals. We're just seen as robots, you know, and this is perpetuated through media and the film and, you know, TV. We're never given our own central narratives. We're always, you know, the side characters. Yeah, yeah, definitely. In, in the novel, there's also um, uh, some brief forays into the visual art world. And there's this kind of parallel um, sort of white elitism there as well, isn't there? Yeah, I really want. I really wanted to do that. I think. I think. I think I didn't do that very subtly. <laughs> maybe. Maybe <laughs> I. I want. Yeah, I did. I, I did that very explicitly. Like because I feel like if I wasn't a writer, I would definitely be a visual artist. I like the visual art. Like artists are people who are, who who like move through the world in the way I do. Like as in they ask questions about what it means to be a human being, and I feel like there is no better way to live if you are privileged to answer those questions and to ask better ways to you know describe the human condition in their own way I feel like um I really wanted to do that from yet again another Asian and female perspective so it was important for me to have that extra Asian perspective not just Jenna but also Valerie yeah Mm. I I really enjoy the different side characters in this novel um I wonder, do you, do you see the same systemic issues of class, gender, race, um, ethnicity um, playing on the book scene now that uh, you're publishing for the first time? Yeah, um, absolutely, definitely. Like, um, I feel like the I feel like it's changing and it's promising this change, but the speed is glacial and mm. it should never be. You know, like if 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 someone had asked me, like, oh, um, do I still see feel seen in you know in in the Australian literary culture? I'd say like absolutely not. And just because we have a few, like you know, Alice Pong, um, Ben Law, they're great people, but you know, you would never ask, um, say, like a white writer if if they feel like you know just because there's one or two white writers out there that that is that is enough, you know it's it's just like we should never think in a way that where we can rest on our laurels and um you know we've had equal distri- you know distribution of attention to people of color and there's always i think we as a country we can always do better mm. yes there's there's a there's a dark humor in this novel that um is very um focused on it's really focused on Sydney um, as this kind of paradise city that's crushed by white privilege and money. And, and Jenna is, you know, is, is fully aware of these kind of opposing forces of the South side and the North side of the city. 
and there's no conversation going on around Jenna um, without anyone who's over 30 starting to chat about real estate. Um, and I found that very accurate. <laughs> um, uh, your family came to Australia from Taiwan, as you said, when you were very little. Um, and from your rather impressive bio, it seems like you've traveled a heck of a lot. Um, is Sydney a bit of a joke? <laughs> I feel like you're um, wanting me to say something controversial. <laughs> um, um, okay, yeah. Um, Sydney is not a joke, but Sydney is like, I feel like Sydney is that really pretty girl in high school that is just pretty and that's it. Like she has no surface or depth, you know? I really think I that. that. And, and um, she's so vacuous. Like I feel, I've always felt very alienated in Sydney because Sydney people are so there's because it's I mean I'm just speaking here specifically about the the inner west and you know like the north shore like very very wealthy areas um so I'll be very specific when I make these comments but it's like a, a bunch of people who are so um sheltered and buffered by their money um from ever having to explore deeper I guess deeper ways of like questioning their place in the world or like um, coming to terms with like maybe um, struggle or suffering that money literally just kind of buffers you against. And um, I feel like that comfort is is something that I felt very isolating, like this sense of uh, we're really happy next to the beach, you know, um, we have, we can spend like $50 at brunch and, you know, not blink. <laughs> um, yeah. I feel like comfort makes people dangerously, like, I think comfort is a dangerous place to be because you're not wanting to change the world. Like I, I'm someone who's constantly in a place of like anger and discomfort because the world really is a very effed up place. And I don't ever want to be comfortable because being comfortable means that I don't, feel compelled to change things and there was always always things to change you know absolutely um i've really enjoyed this conversation um and i'm sorry we're smashing through time but i want to talk um you talked about the 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 taboo of loneliness earlier um and I, i found that fascinating i i i love the 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 way you approach the the idea of loneliness in this novel um from a a, 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 just a, a different perspective than which you, you would just uh, normally sort of put it, um, that you can be incredibly, you know, uh, talented and, and um, widely social, um, but being in, just crushingly lonely. Um, and there's all this conversation, there's all this discourse going on around, I don't know, public health and, and medicine, and you just see article after article, and people talk about this kind of loneliness epidemic. Um, yeah. uh, which which just seems to be um, phrased through just like a, a like white male perspective and people are explaining it away by saying, well, we don't go to church anymore or, you know, we don't go to Boy Scouts or have <laughs> civic clubs. Um, yeah. But, but <laughs> through this novel, you're able to extrapolate like a, a much more um, perhaps serious reason for loneliness. Uh yeah, I, I just, I wonder, um, yeah, are we just full of shit when we talk about loneliness? 
No, I think um, all those reasons are legitimate, but your perspective on like the current rhetoric around it being centre and also voiced by white straight white men, I agree with. Um, I think what I am deeply interested in in terms of loneliness is the shame um, associated mm. with admitting it. Like it's almost like repellent when someone says I'm lonely, like where mm-hmm. you can go out and say, I'm so sex starved and people will not judge you. Whereas like, if you go out and say, I'm so lonely, people will like think you are diseased or something, you know? Um, it's, and I find that fascinating. I find that so fascinating that we, fi- we are so unwilling as a society and also individually with our friends to admit loneliness. And I really wanted to kind of, drill into that shame and I, I I guess it's because like I've always grown like I and I still I, I guess I'm still struggling through that and negotiating that with my own um with my own mind but like this sense of like shame and what it can do to you um I find that like endlessly fascinating because you know when I think this idea of shame I've grown up with because um, of my parents, I guess. My parents were deeply conservative um, Asian migrants. And in Asian culture, I I know at least in Taiwan, shame is used as a societal sort of tool in order to keep people down and keep people not for not kind of spinning away from the standard trajectory of like finding a mate when you're 25, getting married, having children, um, buying a house, um, staying at a job for 50 years and then dying. Like, I feel like um, shame and, and the way in which shame is operates by is operated by, within governments in Asian countries is still like laceratingly um, powerful and, I think a lot of people in Australia, perhaps, you know, people, white people who don't have many people of colour friends, they don't know that we're always struggling with this residue of shame that's been carried on from our parents. And I think that's what I was fascinated in trying to interrogate in this novel. Yeah, it's also that and the conflation of loneliness with um, romance and also sex that I find really interesting, that that shame finds expression in Jenna's um, sexual behaviour. Yeah. I just think it's an interesting thing about our society that we usually only think of loneliness in terms of I have no one, like, to date. I have no boyfriend, no girlfriend, no part. Um, But whereas this book kind of shows that you can have many partners and be physically with people, but you can still be just so profoundly lonely. Yeah. It's kind yeah. of confronting to read. Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that lately in the last couple of years as well. Like, and I think social media and technology have a lot to say about this and have a lot to mm. contribute in this epidemic, like you said, Ben, in regards to like young, especially young millennials feeling like disabled and paralyzed by loneliness it's because you know you hop onto Instagram, you can see uh, like beautiful women and men living extraordinarily beautiful lives and it's just like an it's it's a recipe for like hating on yourself and hating on your life and like I often think about what it was like to live in the world 100 years ago and how perhaps I wouldn't feel so lonely because my relationships might have been richer because I didn't have Instagram or Facebook and my you know the people I would meet I would have deep long conversations with 
you know, without the distraction of phones in front of us. I feel that as though our attention, like I worry about the, the next generation and us, I guess, even, you know, people today, I worry for the ways in which our mind is going to change in generations to come because of technology and because we die, we have our attention fragmented and disabled so like momentarily and easily by technology and I feel like that is I don't know I I just feel like our sense of wanting more 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 you know is just inextricably linked to what social media pounds onto us every day yeah and and perhaps there's a, a constant pressure to curate yourself in a way that is socially and politically um uh, desirable I know I hate that like I really I deeply hate um being being online it makes me deeply com- uncomfortable like having an yeah. Instagram page and stuff like I I really despise that because I don't want to have to perform you know like you said it's completely curated yeah and I, I just, yeah I've got one but like I, I'll, I'll, I'll look at something and be like oh that's really cool I'll take a photo of that and put it on my thing for my friends but then I'm like oh well and then I think oh well how my friends view that in context of the other ones I'm like why am I why am I privileged <laughs> to take a photo of this? And why haven't I been talking about X, Y, and Z? And um, I just feel ashamed and then just go into a corner and just turn the phone off. Um, <laughs> oh, that's that's so just sad. like my own, I guess that's just like we have to get past that. Um, uh, do you like you, you you describe classical music so vividly accurately um, to, to my amateur eyes? Um, do you enjoy classical music do you go to concerts is it something you um is that something that's a big part of your life or is this just like been forensically researched for this novel um classical music used to be a big love of mine because it was a forced love I'd say like when you grow up when you grow up thinking that that is the way to be validated you are like I feel like I was subconsciously desiring something because it was required of me to desire that one thing and so I listened to classical music for years on end I went to classical music concerts um ferociously like consistently and I think now I've come to a place where I still have this deep very deep conflicting um desire I'm sorry very conflicting um, sort of thoughts about it in the way that I'm deeply conflicted when I see like Woody Allen films because you know everyone knows about Woody Allen but yet I still fucking love his films you know um, and I feel like classical music, like I wouldn't say I listen to it at, that much these days. I have about 10 pieces, mostly piano pieces, actually, that I would say when I listen to it, I literally die because they are so overwhelmingly like perfect in their execution. And when you hear it, you feel like you're a better human being. But besides those 10, I, I like, I, I don't, I wouldn't like go to the opera. I wouldn't go spend my money on like a, a concert with music. I don't, I'm not familiar with because I, it doesn't speak to me. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't speak that language to me. I feel like like I, I usually only listen to jazz because I feel like that speaks to me. Jazz is so much more liberating to my mind and to my like ears, I guess. Right. And have you ever performed as a jazz player? Oh, no, I haven't. It's too hard. <laughs> That's a whole other journey you've got to go on, Ben. Yeah. I, <laughs> I live with I, a music teacher and she's like, I just, if I'd become a jazz musician, you'd have to devote your entire life and every 
second you're listening to something it should be jazz and it's just like it's more <laughs> than just technique it's way of life you know oh I, yeah yeah i just wonder if um uh you can derive pure joy from it uh, because you've never even had a had a sort of uh a hand in that game you know what yeah, i mean yeah maybe yeah maybe that mm-hmm. is what it is yeah um will you write fiction again what, will, yeah, what are you working on next Oh, I'm working on my second novel, which is so super exciting. <laughs> Great. Tell us about it. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, it's actually about a group of classical musicians again, <laughs> which is so funny. Like, I feel like maybe I'm, I've got, like, I've spent years in therapy trying to think things through, but maybe this is just, like, another thing where I'm trying to extricate some sort of conflicting emotion I have around classical musicians and what they represent to me. But, um, like, I guess it's just uh, it's a book about a woman who falls in love with a classical musician. Like it's from the centered from an Asian perspective again, um, but it's nothing like Jenna. It's it's not in um, first person. It it's um, in third person, but it's just about the eight like my gaze. Like I'm trying to center my gaze because. I feel like my whole life up until maybe 12 months ago, I've only read books written by white people and especially straight people and especially male straight white people. And like I've, I've come to like think like them and I'm horrified in the ways in which the way I see the world is very much from their lens and it's not through my own lens. And so I think this book is just trying to, Established my own view of the world and how I see white people. Fantastic. I, I love the way you're using just the, the sense of in, inquiry of fiction is, is so deeply set in how you work. I, I just think that's awesome. And I can't wait to read it. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. This book has gotten a, a huge reaction already. Um, and it's mm. everyone's saying this bold, exciting new voice has arrived. And um, I'm very excited to see how. <laughs> how it's going to uh, be received. And um, yeah, I'm super excited to be selling it. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. It was really great to chat. Yeah, I think this has been such an interesting chat. And uh, for all our listeners at home, if you'd like to grab your copy of A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing, uh, you can buy it from booktopia.com.au or from your local bookstore. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au